0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Hey, good morning, Church. Uh, my name is Patrick Andrews. Um, I'm normally a uh, member of Christ Presbyterian Church, however, I am now a student up at Covenant Theological Seminary. So. I deeply appreciate the joy and love you guys have sent me along my way, um, and I am honored to be able to read today's scripture for you. Uh, Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breadth of his lips he will kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy an all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you so much for reading that passage of scripture. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ Presbyterian Church. I think we have some visitors and also students who have come back from their college semester, very surreal semester, hopefully uh, uh, never to be repeated again. Uh, So, but anyway, really, really good to see you. My name is Paul Lim, for those of you who I haven't had the pleasure of meeting. I serve here at Christ Presbyterian Church as well as at Vanderbilt University as a professor, and here I serve as the uh, scholar in residence as well as a senior advisor for our uh, National Institute for Faith and Work. So uh, once again, it's a great, great delight to start the Advent series with you uh, here uh, as we have lit the Advent candle and to be reminded of the familiar surroundings of the Christmas tree and all the ornaments and the stories of Jesus. And we're going to take us to an ancient text from Isaiah chapter 11, and we'll wrestle together and hopefully engage with what this passage has to teach us about our life here and now today. So if that's okay with you, let's... uh, Pray one more time. Gracious Heavenly Father, we look to you now for your words of truth and transformation to be upon us. May your Holy Spirit work deeply in our souls and our minds to lead us to your truth and mercy and love so that we may know the true meaning of Advent, that it is not only a season of waiting, but also a season of loving and rejoicing. Thank you, in your name we prayed. amen. Amen, so um, happy belated Thanksgiving, I, uh, just merely three days ago, and I think for all of us, I may safely say that this was probably completely unexpected and unprecedented Thanksgiving. Compare that to 2019 and this year's Thanksgiving. In many ways, uh, they were very different, right? Um, three words that came to my mind among others were, one was limitations, there are a lot of limitations in terms of uh, the availability and ability to travel and to meet friends and family and to celebrate with them. There also, as a collective whole in this global village, we have experienced lots of losses, loss of um, hourly wages and jobs and family members and friends and coworkers and people that we haven't met. and Perhaps never will. So limitations and losses, but also there was this word that I want us to kind of uh, dig deeply onto, and that is the word longing. Longing. We want to spend time thinking about and meditating on the word longing, not only in relation to Thanksgiving 2020, but especially as it relates to today's passage. A picture, a photograph comes to my, came to my mind as I was thinking about the sermon in between the two services. I have a friend named Christian. He worships down at Cold Springs uh, uh, location. And he had a picture on his uh, uh, social media where it had a picture of his mother and, um, and she was standing behind the glass door and ostensibly greeted by her grandchildren. And that picture, that beautiful picture, really for me encapsulated that word longing. The grandmother looking onto her grandchildren with love and longing, and yet they cannot go through the glass, so they have to be separated, and there is a great, great longing that is evoked deep within both the grandmother and the grandchildren. I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. And reading of this passage of scripture I submit to you this morning ought to create a similar longing for the world that is to come and the Lord of this world, who is making all things anew now. So I want to share with you two songs that got a lot of play on my Spotify these couple of weeks as I've been kind of thinking about this sermon. Uh, The first one is by an artist regarded as perhaps the greatest jazz musician of all time and arguably uh, the one with the most recognizable voice in the world. So, you know, every time I prepare talks or lectures or sermons, I usually Google things a lot. So I was kind of curious. I Googled this phrase, the most recognizable voice in the world. Did you know that there's a ranking of these things? And so there was a top 10 ranking, and this man was at the very top of it all. His name is Louis Armstrong, and the song is What a Wonderful World. You can probably think, you know, and just humming in your heads, you know, listening to that song really evokes a deep sense of longing for me. I see trees of green, red roses too, I see them bloom for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow so pretty in the sky are also on the faces of people going by. And here's a kicker from me. Are you ready for this? I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. Really? Is that so? Please, Mr. Armstrong, take me to that wonderful world. I don't know about you, but I want to live in that world where people saying hello really is an indication of a deep and abiding affection for each other. When you say hello, you're really saying, I love you. I long for that world, don't you? I do. Perhaps equally or even more powerfully evocative of deep longing for God's wonderland is found in today's text. So are you ready for this? Listen carefully now. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the boar. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand, its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all of my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I don't know about you, but my immediate reaction to listening to and wrestling with this text are in these three questions. Where is this world? When is this world coming to us? And how do I get in? Wolf and the lamb, calf and lion, cow and boar will live, lie down, and feed together in a world where lions become vegans? Really? I long for that world, don't you? So as I read this passage many times in the last few weeks, it really created this deep longing. Where is this world? How do I get there, and who will usher in that world for us? And you thought that only Hieronymus Bosch was crazy, this 14th century, 15th century Dutch painter who, whose paintings have kind of created lots of uh, deep kind of sensation in terms of the kind of otherworldly nature. And so if you thought he was crazy, what had Isaiah been eating or drinking? I mean, he came up with these ideas, and, or was it just through inspired apocalyptic vision? I realize what I've just said, it might've come across either crude or even sacrilegious to some pious ears here. Uh, And for that, I beg your pardon. But what I am saying is that we don't often really pay that close attention to and seriously grapple with what these words are actually saying to us. So I want us to wrestle with these words together. When will this happen? Where will this be? Who will bring this about? And lastly, how does this fit in with the rest of The prophecies of Isaiah. One of the things we should be doing as a congregation in some ways is to read this book of prophecy by Isaiah, especially the chapters before the text at hand today. For example, chapter 10 is a prophecy about God's judgment on Assyria, uh, the kingdom that, that was going to invade Judah, and about Judah as well. Last week, Pastor Scott preached from Isaiah 6, 8-13, and it contained the prophecy about the forthcoming destruction and desolation as a way to really think about and kind of put it in context, Isaiah's commissioning service as he began his ministry. It is about this forthcoming destruction and desolation and capture and captivity. How long, O Lord? And the Lord answers, until the cities lie ruined, and although a tenth of it will remain, it will again be laid waste. Frighteningly real and imminent scare And all of that did come true As did the words about the imminent Messiah's coming as well Yet it was not all doom and gloom It ended with these words So the holy seed will be the stump in the land So throughout this kind of a passage we've been looking at in Isaiah There are words about seed and stump and branch So these are uh, kind of a Um, metaphors about trees that are trying to convey to us something about the persistent kind of remnant that is the holy remnant. Uh, So amidst such a frightful desolation, according to John Calvin, uh, he writes, they might doubt who should be their deliverer. He therefore promised that one will spring even out of a dry trunk. And Isaiah continues, as I mentioned a little before, the same metaphor of a tree of trees in forest because it is far more beautiful than if he had said in plain language that the Messiah would come. Having threatened that the forest will be entirely cut down, Isaiah adds that still a branch will arise out of it to restore the abundance and magnificence of the consumed forest and lost kingdom. So wrote Calvin, who just happens to be one of the most influential biblical commentators for me in my walk with the Lord. So then we come to the beginning of today's text. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit, right? So right now, things are looking kind of weak and withered, but it's a promise of the world to come, the promise of a different reality than what it looks right now. We may not be able to imagine the world after COVID, but we need to. We need to think about it in light of the gospel. I was sharing after, I was listening to a few people after the first service, and we all uh, talked about how fear is something that is gripping a lot of us. And you know what? Throughout scripture, both in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible as well as in the New Testament, God repeatedly tells the people of God, fear not for what I am with you and how desperately and delightfully we need those words in Thanksgiving season advances in 2020. None of us could have expected it in Thanksgiving 2019. None of us. I bet you you couldn't have, I could not have. And yet here we are. And so I need to remind you and me that we need fear not. Martin Luther said these words. He said, I fear God so much that I fear nobody or nothing else taking God so seriously, and the reign of God, and we need that reminder, I need that reminder, as I mask myself, as I try to social distance and do all of these things, knowing that God is with us and for us. So after that, a shoot will come up. It continues on describing the relationship between the Spirit of the Lord and this branch from the stump of Jesse. So as we look at today's, uh, the rest of the passage, we'll notice that it answers three major questions of humanity and its relationship with the shoot from the stump of Jesse. So the three points are put as questions. Um, so the first point is questions of justice answered, the Messiah's identity. Second point is questions of economics answered, the Messiah's activity. And the third point is, questions of knowledge answered, the Messiah's destiny. So justice and identity, economics and activity, knowledge and destiny might be another way of framing our conversation on the messianic figure about whom this prophecy describes. So I want you to really kind of suspend your already existing judgment. Do not yet think that this passage in Isaiah 11 is about Jesus, but I want us to kind of read it and listen to it as if we hadn't read it before. We are reading it in without the light of and the benefit of Jesus, the messianic king. What kind of conclusions would we draw? And by the way, and this is an important by the way, the fact that this passage has to do with both the restoration of Israel's kingdom after the Assyrian captivity and the role to be played by this mysterious messianic figure is something both Orthodox Jewish commentators and Christian commentators agree on. Where they do differ and ultimately diverge, however, has to do with whether this prophecy refers to Jesus or not. Another point before we get to point number one is this, as our series is called A Weary World Rejoices. Yes, this is precisely the case with the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. There was much fear of foreign invasion, much fear of possible loss of sovereignty and autonomy, the looming capture and captivity on the horizon, which is currently unbeknownst to them. This is strikingly similar to our world in 2020. So fear not and have faith. Let's move to the first point, questions of justice answered, the Messiah's identity. We see that in verses 1 through 5 questions of justice answered the Messiah's identity. Notice with me in verse 2 of today's text as to how the prophet describes the identity of the mystery figure, the shoot from the stump of Jesse. It says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. The consequence of having the spirit of the Lord resting on him was to have a direct impact in the way this mystery figure will establish and enact justice in the land. Questions of justice answered the Messiah's identity. In many passages prior to chapter 11, Isaiah had been decrying against various manifestations of injustice in Judah and against the perversion of God's holy laws. Now then the focal point of the identity of the Messianic figure is how he will fulfill and carry out justice. Justice as opposed to injustice. Nobody in this world likes to receive injustice. We may may not be just all the time ourselves, but let's say you got a speeding ticket for going 34 miles in a 35-mile zone because the officer thought that you were going for 44 miles. We will cry out, injustice! What if you're wrongfully convicted for a crime that you never committed? We'll cry unjust injustice. So we know deep down, as, as part of the kind of a, a seed of uh, um, sense of the divine within every human heart, that we desire justice and we desire to be just rather than unjust and pursue injustice. And yet, And yet, the complicating aspect of human existence is that so often we find ourselves as participating and perpetuating Injustice rather than justice, pursuing unjust gain rather than just sometimes. So notice verse 3, how his delight in the fear of the Lord will lead to the mystery of messianic figures not judging a book by its cover or color or deciding merely on hearing. Instead, with righteousness, it says, he will judge the needy and with justice he will make decisions for the poor of the earth. Now, why is it so important, the language about the needy and the poor? Here's why. In chapter 10, just the previous chapter, Isaiah had issued a powerful indictment against the judges of Judah who were failing to uphold justice for the poor. The text is frighteningly prophetic for the systems of human justice then as well as now. So in Calvin's commentary in Isaiah 10, it says, you know what? Uh, the words that Isaiah wrote are these, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights, and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people. So Calvin, looking at this text, said that, you know what? Civil magistrate ought to be actually much more assiduous in assisting the poor, but in fact, what they often do is to persecute and marginalize the poor, to protect the causes and cases of the rich. Looking at an ancient Jewish text, a 16th century French refugee living in Geneva says that, and it also has some powerful valence in the way that we think about justice today, does it not? So instead of that perverted institution and those who sat on those benches, this messianic judge Let's say not Jesus yet, but this messianic judge will judge with utter impartiality. When you stand before this judge, you know that there is no no impartiality, that there will be a perfect rendering of justice according to the standard that is God's. So we read in verse 5, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. That means he embodies the entire aspect of justice, divine and human. If there was a common element between the times of Isaiah and our times, I think it is the issue of justice. Whether it is with regard to refugees, whether it is regard to issues about socioeconomic or family disputes or you know, work, uh, workers' wages, fair wages, and all of these things are often regarded as issues of justice and as we'll look at later on, issues of economics. Then and now, people are crying, how long, O oh Lord, how long? will you forget us forever? How long shall our enemies be exalted over us? Are not only the questions of the son of Jesse, David, who said these words in Psalm 13, but also for all of humanity as well. So friends, we need to remind ourselves of this very important truth, that establishment of human justice system will always be incomplete and partial and thus will ultimately fail. Whether the courts of Solomon or the courts of law based upon the Hammurabi Code, or the Magna Carta, or the ancient China, laws of ancient China, or even our vaunted constitution and the Supreme Court—even these institutions have at least rendered one wrong verdict, and that's a safe assumption to make. Here, this passage reminds us that until the reign of the Messiah and the the, the impartial and immortal Judge of all people, we should simultaneously labor toward achieving a. Great approximation and imitation of justice as the messianic kingdom has promised and also to expect that it won't be fulfilled until the final restoration of all things will see justice perfected. So I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. So let's move to point number two. Second point is questions of economics and ecology answered, the Messiah's activity. We see that in verses six through eight. Questions of justice answered, that was the Messiah's identity, that he will judge all things. He will enact and establish justice in ways that we are not able to do perfectly. And after after describing the identity of this infallible and impartial judge, who will act as a result of the spirit of the Lord resting on him, we see that later on in Isaiah chapter 61, similar verbiage. Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Do these words sound familiar to you? It shows up in Isaiah chapter 61, but shows up somewhere else, does it not? This will be the text that Jesus himself will read in the synagogue as he began his public ministry. And we read that in Luke chapter 4. That he read these words audaciously and authoritatively to proclaim that today, this very day, this passage of scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now let me ask you this. If you're in that first century context and you're there in that synagogue, worshiping with everybody else, and this guy comes up and he becomes the lector, the reader, and he gets up and says, you know what, friends? The passage we read, is about me. How would you respond to it? Would you say, amen, hallelujah? Or would you say, no, are you crazy? We know your mom and dad. I think the latter. I don't know about you, but I know I would've done the latter. Because I said, well, who are you? I mean, imagine anybody walking up here next week or today and says if i were to tell you hey this passage that was just read for us it's about me you should really get up and walk away like you know this guy's crazy now I want us to really think about that. There is a lot of, and there is a very interesting book by Professor uh, Novenson who teaches at the University of Edinburgh, and he writes about this kind of many Messianic expectations and emergences, and what that meant for kind of uh, the expectation of the Jews for the Messianic kingdom. And there was a lot of expectation as well as lack of clarity. And so many had come and many came since. And so it's, it's okay, I think, to really be honest and say, yeah, you know what, I don't know if I would have gotten the identity of Jesus right, right there. And you know, the response of the congregation led him to utter this famous dictum. He said, no prophet is accepted in his, own, in his hometown. And that's how he began his ministry, with a good number of people taking offense at his appropriation of the messianic role spoken about in the prophecy of Isaiah. So what will he do? What does he do? We see a lot of insane descriptions of strange activities among the animals in verses six through eight. It reads almost as if there is a major chaos from proper ordering and functioning in their eating and sleeping behaviors and lifestyles. I said that the second point is question of economics and ecology answer, the Messiah's activity. In a crazy way, and I mean that all sincerely crazy way, The prophet is seeing into the future and writing about it in a way that is only possible with this kind of apocalyptic imagination. If you forgot, let's remind ourselves, wolf and lamb, leopard and goat, calf and lion, cow and bear feed together, their young will lie down together, lions will eat straw, the infant will play near cobra's den, young child will put his hand into the viper's nest and come out unharmed. What? What Isaiah is writing, even in a way that he himself wasn't 100% clear, is this. The activity of this messianic figure will be such that there will be a reversal of logic and laws of the prey and predator behavior. Look at the language here. How can you really expect wolves and lambs living together? Did you just hear that? I mean, can you really expect that? Or can a leopard really lie down with a goat? How can the goat be that stupid? Has the leopard decided to go on a hunger strike? What's going on here? Is Isaiah sane? Has he had too much to drink? No, he's only only filled with the spirit, not spirits, so that he can look into the reordering of human economics and animal ecologies. Animal behaviors are symptomatic of the world in its orientation since the fall. As I was preparing this sermon, I asked, uh, you know, my dog Baxter sitting at my feet yesterday and I asked Baxter, hey, you know, can you and a wolf lie down together? He looked at me as if I was crazy and just whimpered something and that's what it was. Of course, Baxter said, barkingly, no way. But you get the picture. Can a dog and a wolf lie down together in this today's present day ordering of the universe? I don't think so. So then it creates both curiosity and longing. What is this world about? What is the prophet trying to describe for me? And when will that be? And who will bring that about? A little child shall lead them. Who is that little child? Furthermore, lions will become vegetarians or vegans. How could that be and why? Let's take a listen to Calvin once again, explaining this verse. Christ, he says, Christ will come to drive away everything hurtful out of the world and to restore to his former beauty the world which lay under the curse. For this reason, Isaiah says, that straws will be the food of the lion as well as of the ox. For if the stain of sin had not polluted the world, no animal would have been addicted to prey on blood, but the fruits of the earth would have sufficed for all according to the method which God had appointed." Raises a lot of questions about vegetarianism or veganism, or is it right to eat meat and all that. We won't get into that. You figure it out on your own for your next Thanksgiving or Advent dinner. But let's go back to this text. Not only will this reversal of the curse be effective in the economy within the animal kingdom, that'll be analogous to the reversal of human economic behavior as well. Let me say that again, this whole, this, this strange language about the goat and the lamb and the wolf and the lamb and ox eating, you know, same thing as lions, this is an analogy to, to that which is about to happen in the animal economy, but also as an analogy of what will happen in the human economy. No more predatory lending practices, no more tears and fears gripping our hearts, questions of economy answered, true equity and true justice. You know what? It is basically why were they why do animals not sit down together and lie down together why not wolf and the wolf and the lamb it is because of what fear lamb is rightly afraid of wolves because a lamb knows that oh that's about to devour me and what this beautiful imagery and apocalyptic imagination is inviting us into is a world where there is an evaporation elimination and ex- extermination of fear so that we deal with each other no longer based on fear, but based upon love and faith and hope. Questions of economy answered, true equity and true justice, true equality and true submission of our heart's desires from greed and everything that stands against the messianic kingdom of Christ. That leads me to the third and the final point of today's sermon, questions of knowledge answered the Messiah's destiny. We see that in verse 9. Verse 9 reads, They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as as the waters cover the sea. We see the same language in the book of Habakkuk as well. Fantastic words of truth. Knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth in the same way that waters obviously cover the sea. What will this knowledge do for us? What does knowledge do for us in general? It has occurred to me recently that I've been in school for a long time. I work at a school, I've been working at a school for two decades, so I guess since about age seven, I've not left school. For a guy who really did not like school very much when I was younger, that's a long sentence. And that's where I think about a lot of things. So I think you're probably going to be in in agreement with me on this, that schools are to be places of knowledge. Knowledge acquisition, knowledge dissemination, knowledge misinformation, knowledge destruction, knowledge production. You know, I'm kidding about two of the four going five, but you get the picture. Knowledge can be power, is power but that power can either have a destructive vector or a constructive vector. You know about the establishment of Nobel Prizes, right? Albert Nobel was a Swedish chemist, engineer, and an industrial mogul whose singular contribution to human life was his knowledge of the formula for dynamite. He was horrified to see that while the knowledge of making dynamite could help ameliorate the human condition greatly by helping road constructions and mining, but the same thing could be used to maim and murder people in positions of war. So, in his will of 1896, he bequeathed all of his remaining assets to be invested and its interest to be devoted in perpetuity to recognize and reward, and this is what it says in the will the person who shall have done the most or the best work for a fraternity between the nation and the abolition or reduction of standing armies. You see, it's never too late to redirect the course of the destiny of one's knowledge. Knowing God, you're about to turn the corner to the closing, knowing God is a key to your life's aspirations, ambitions, and acquisitions, and activities. If you don't believe that, then all of your other knowledge are superfluous and secondary and amount to nothing at all. Knowing God, knowing the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit who existed eternally out of that eternal love and everything that God does is out of that overflow of that love as a giver of life and the gift itself. I think that's it right there. Not only is God the giver of life, but God is the gift itself. And to the extent that we begin to say, that is really true in my life, That is a real way to measure our spiritual growth. To the extent that I can honestly say that, you know what, all the gifts are great, but the greatest gift for me is God. God is with me and God is for me. We are all too often ready to settle for something far less grand and far more grotesque than God himself. We often, I do, I often take God's gift and refuse to take God as the gift itself. The final destiny of all our pursuit of justice, economics, and ethics, and epistemology is to know God rightly and to love all that God loves faithfully and fervently. This is why we study. This is why we play. This is why we pay tithes. This is why we go on vacations. This is why we worship, to come to know that we are already known and loved, I'm an 80s guy, so you may remember that uh, sitcom, Cheers, right? You go to a place, a pub or something, where everyone knows your name. You don't need to reintroduce yourself. You don't have to have this kind of stranger fear, you know, none of that. Stranger danger. No, you go in there, everyone knows you already. Coming to a place that you're already known, but more than that, and loved. That's the place of our rest in this messianic figure named Jesus. That creates such a deep longing for me. So let me close. I told you earlier that there were two songs on my Spotify playlist that got a lot of play recently. And the second one is, first one is Louis Armstrong, What a Wonderful World. The second one is by this Irish rock band, U2. And the song is probably one of my favorite songs of all time, Where the Streets Have No Name. The lead singer uh, of U2, Bono, explained the meaning of the song, story behind the song in 1987. He said, an interesting story that someone told me once is that in Belfast, they're from Northern Ireland, Belfast, by, you can see by what street someone lives on, you can tell not only their religion, but also how much money they're making, literally by which side of the road they live on, because the further up the hill you go, the more expensive the houses become. And so they say, I want to I live, I want to go to this, a place where the streets have no name at all. You cannot tell. It's almost like C.S. Lewis talking about till we have faces. You know, someone told me this, and almost as a joke, but I took that very seriously. He said to me, you know, what I like about putting on your mask is they can't tell how not so good looking I am because you have kind of covered half of your face. C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that, you know, this eschatological vision, the longing we have, we're, we're not going to be judged by how beautiful or not so beautiful you are, what kind of color or culture, whatever you may be coming from, but you will be judged by the fact that you're already known by God and loved by God in Jesus Christ. So literally, and so we heard them belt out this, you know, in that song, I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. Also in the song, there are ample references to desert. And Bono said, in the desert of our lives, we meet God. In parched times, in fire and in flood, we discover who we really are by encountering God. I don't know about you, but the guitar intro by The Edge, the guitarist, powerfully evokes within me a longing for a place that has no name. I want to run, I want to hide, I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. I want to reach out and touch the flame where the streets have no name. I want to feel the sunlight on my face. I see that dust cloud disappear without a trace. I want to take shelter from the poison rain where the streets have no name. Where the streets have no name, where the streets have no name. We're still building, then burning down love, burning down love. And when I go there, I go there with you. Is all I can do. As I was singing this song many a time, the you is to me, the Lord. When I go there, I want to go there with you. As we close, my prayer for you and me, instead for all of us, whether in person or online, whether on Old Hickory or Koinonia or Cold Springs or Music Row, is that wherever you go, whatever knowledge you produce and pursue, will do so with the longing to be found where the streets have no name. And the one who is prophesied in Isaiah's hauntingly beautiful words here will not only meet you there, but carry you until that day and that place. Until then, we remember the Lord's death and resurrection by participating in the Lord's Supper and, and proclaiming the worthiness of the Messiah as the answer to our longings and questions. To that wonderful world of our Savior and Lord, we run to by running to the table. Shall we pray together? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beginning of Advent season, we light up the candle and to be reminded of the light of the world, Jesus, who has come into this world. People are longing for that divine intervention. But none of us could really expect that God will come in that humility, born away in a manger, out of wedlock, being made objects of scorn and suspicion. You went through all of that in order to show us that divine humility in that act of humiliation so that in our imitation of you, we become what you have promised us to be. So we thank you for that promise that are now presented to us in these tactile elements and and of uh, bread and wine. May we participate in it with deep joy and longing and help us to proclaim the living reality of Jesus, the Messiah. Amen.